Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. As you listen to us, we are communicating to you. Hopefully, we are doing it in a manner that allows us to comfortably get our ideas across to you. There is a fascinating science to communication, and it is perhaps the most common social thing that we do. Problems arise, however, when people lack the skills to adequately communicate with each other. And teaching these skills is often a big part of growing up, and sometimes it's even a part of psychological treatment. Joining us today is Virginia Bouquier, psychiatrist in Miami, who is going to take us through an overview of this very basic, very necessary, and very important skill. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. Communication is observed in every living organization. So let's start with some very basic human communication notions. What is a communication skill? Communication, I will start by defining it, transferring information from one person to another. You let me know that you were organizing this podcast, and I let you know that I was interested in participating. We are here today because we both communicated our intentions to each other. Is communication, is part of communication the development of rapport between the speaker and the receiver? Yes. Especially in times of conflict, maintaining rapport is the most important thing to do in order to maintain the communication flowing. Okay. When I'm talking to you, there's all sorts of pieces to it. A communication is what I say, how I say it, how it's decoded by you, and then what the message is taken to mean, how you interpret this. Let's talk a little bit then about the notion of how communication skills might worsen a conflict and how understanding the communication skill might actually serve to resolve a conflict. Let's get very specific. There are three or four aspects of how we speak that can enhance or impair our ability to communicate. The first one is learn to speak in what we call the first position, utilizing the first person. For example, if I say, I feel hurt when you yell at me, sounds very different from you hurt me. Why is that? Because in a conflict, we naturally tend to use the you first. And when we use the you first, in that context, we form an accusation. And when we accuse or attack another person, The other person who's the recipient of the communication will pull all the shields up, become defensive, and the conversation is over before it started. So if I start saying what I feel, I am keeping the channels of communication open. So I say, I feel hurt. And that has another purpose, which is allowing me to validate my feelings. If I say, you hurt my feelings when you yell, The other person can say, no, I don't hurt you. Then we get into a power struggle, into another cumbersome conversation. When I say, this is what I feel, this is what I feel. So it really serves two purposes. It doesn't attack the other and maintains the channel open and validates my own emotions or the emotions of the person who is expressing the emotion. So a person could say something in a snippy manner, but the way in which they say it could be interpreted very differently and may just may fire up the conflict even more so. Exactly. Are people generally open to learning about their communication styles or do they tend to resist it? It depends. Being a psychiatrist, I do psychotherapy also and I use the communication 
skills in my teachings to the patient. Sometimes when people are in pain, they are motivated to do something to improve their situation. When they are in a situation, for example, where they need to get along at work because their position may be at risk, they are motivated to examine or learn new ways to communicate that could be more effective. One of the things that you mentioned when we were preparing for this interview was the notion of transforming complaints into requests. A very interesting notion. Can you elaborate on that? Yes. Naturally, all human beings tend to complain when we don't like something. And when we don't like what someone else is doing to us, it's easy to go into complaint. You're always late, or you don't pay attention to me, or why you're saying the same thing over and over. Complain. In general, it is more effective to make requests. If we go back to the example of yelling, I can say, could you do me a favor and tell me what you want to tell me in a lower tone of voice? I really want to hear what you have to say to me in a lower tone of voice. We all human beings tend to gratify the other when the other asks for favors. It's a natural inclination. If you say, could you do me a favor? Most naturally people say, yes, what do you want? So if we start the conversation that way, we're setting the tone of the conversation as an amicable tone. And then we can talk about what we don't like. For example, call a boss to an employee. I really need an employee that comes on time at 8 o'clock in the morning. Can you be that person? That's a request. This is what I need. If I say you're always late or very irresponsible, I go into the you accusations. I don't help the employee looking at his own or her own behavior and trying to do something about it. What's interesting in that respect is that the boss, who is in a position of power, but in by saying, I need you to do this then, is exploiting his power, and there's no, shall we say, educational quality to it, as opposed to being kinder and saying, I need someone to help us and be here on time, which is a softer approach. One is almost hurtful, and the other is, is not hurtful. Exactly. And besides... Put the responsibility on the person who needs to be on time. For example, if the boss says, I need an employee who is here at 8 o'clock every day, can you be that person? Then the employee has to think what the answer is going to be because there is going to be a commitment afterwards. Yes, I can be that person, and no, I cannot be. So then maybe the boss has to find a different solution for this employee because obviously this employee cannot satisfy what he needs as a boss. It helps solve the problem without going into an argument or setting a ton of accusations or creating more conflict. Okay, so let's flip to the other side, though. Let's say someone is being spoken to in a proper way, but they misinterpret. The problem may be on the part of the receiver. Okay. For example, if I am the boss and I say, I really need an employee that comes here at, at 8 o'clock. Can you be that person? How could you misinterpret that? The person could think that they're being spoken of in a put-down style, but they're not. So we have to teach the receiver, not always just the transmitter. Exactly. Exactly. And in order to teach, uh, to help the receiver, we go into another part, which is addressing behavior versus character. Tell us, please. When we are going to criticize another person because we are not satisfied with what the other is doing, focusing on what the other is doing rather than what the other is, 
makes a huge difference for the receiver because we all have our own ego and we don't want to be hurt. And telling the person, I don't like the way you write this report or I don't like the way you cook or I don't like the way you do whatever, is we are making not a general statement about the person, the character of the person. You are sloppy, you are messy, you are unreliable, you are all these bad examples. But we are just focusing on something. So it's easier for all of us to listen, okay, this person doesn't like this that I do. It allows me to think, okay, if I hear that, I can say, okay, I am not all that bad. It's just this part that my boss doesn't like of what I do. I can work on this. If I am on the receiver end, it puts me in a more cooperative position because I don't feel that my whole persona has been criticized. It's just this little part that I can work on. And that's an important piece of it. And, and, and by extension, you know, we're talking about verbal communications, but there's nonverbal communications as well, facial expressions, for example, posturing. And that's all the aspects of rapport. Verbal rapport is the content of the communication, and the nonverbal, which includes tone of voice, volume, body posture, the breathing, and the most typical example of how can we get in rapport is if you go to the movies in an afternoon and you see a group of teenagers, you immediately know that that group is all together because they dress alike, they laugh alike, they use the same language, they behave in a similar manner, and they are all in rapport. When we have a difference with anybody, we instantly fall out of rapport. And our first move in order to solve the difference with that person is to reestablish the rapport. And we can do it with our tone of voice, talking calmly and conveying, I really want to work this out with you and matching the posture, the breathing pattern. We have a whole workshop on rapport, but basically that's it. It's the nonverbal that conveys to the other person, okay, this person wants to talk things over. We're not going to have a fight. We're not going to have an argument. That's the message that we are sending when we establish the rapport with the nonverbal tool. How much of this is taught in the schools? Do kids learn this from parents? What comes to mind is so much of our communication now is on the Internet. It's text messaging. It's a very brief one or two or three words. As a society, as a group, are we learning good communication skills? No, I don't think so. I think that that's lacking in schools, in business, even in graduate schools. Like how to convey, even for us physicians, for example, learning how to convey our knowledge about an illness and its treatment to a patient, how to show them and help them take responsibility for their illnesses. There is a whole method of establishing rapport and providing that communication in a way that the patient can hear it. The same for a parent. Unfortunately, I am not aware of any lectures or classes for children or parents or bosses. I learned all of this in my neurolinguistic programming training. It would seem that what you're talking about is so key because I hear patients say that a particular doctor seems to understand them better. Why? And I ask them why. Did he talk to you longer? Yes, sometimes that's the case. But they'll say it's his facial expression and the way he approaches them, if he touches them on the shoulder. Those are all communication skills as well. Exactly, exactly. And even for parents, when they want to 
help children grow up and help them make responsible choices. Sometimes with the best of intentions, parents can become very critical and use general words and I didn't mention yet, which is the use of generalizations, words like always, never. They don't help in conflict resolution. And sometimes parents get into a routine of complaining about their child's behavior and make it a general statement. And in general, that doesn't help. It is much more effective to help them say, the last five times you came home late after the curfew. It helps the child take responsibility by asking, okay, what is this about? What is the agreement? How important is an agreement, an agreement that you make with me? Things like that. So we go in from an argument to a conversation. This takes me to one part, which is before we initiate a conversation with somebody, especially when we need to talk about something difficult, there are two questions that we need to have in our mind. One is, what's the purpose of my conversation? What do I want to get out of this conversation? And the other is, do I want to get into an argument or I want to have a conversation? Because the answer to those questions will determine the tone of voice, what we think, how we say it, when we say it, where we say it, and when we say it. Because it makes us think about all these steps that are involved in having a conversation that will lead to a conflict resolution. And people may not think that this is really that important, but if you begin to think about it, it's incredible. Each one of us is very sensitive. When we meet people, we walk away with a sense of, did we connect with them? Are they trying to teach us, hurt us? resolve something with us, and we are all incredibly vigilant to the way we're spoken to. It's a very key skill that we don't pay enough attention to. That is true. That is true. Besides the communication with others, learning how to communicate with ourselves. When we make a mistake, what do we say? How could I be this stupid? That will change the way we feel about what we did. If I say I made a stupid mistake, I can go into, okay, I take responsibility. How do I fix it? In the other, I am attacking myself. So then I feel bad. My self-esteem goes down. I go into, I'll never get over this. I never fix this. My actions will go in a whole different route than problem solving, addressing the issue, taking responsibility and fixing it and moving on. What you're talking about is so central to the whole notion of what psychotherapy, well, I'll say at least partly focused on, and that's learning how to communicate. We tend to look too quickly at symptoms and give a medication and hope that you feel better. You're talking about the other side of this entire process. Yes, I do. And that's why I love what I do in the combination of therapy and medicine, because I explain to the patient medicines can help you stabilize the neurotransmitters that are out of proportion in your brain for whatever reason. The brain, like any other organ, is not perfect all the time. When it affects the areas that modulate mood, if there is a disproportion, you will have symptoms. So you take the medicine, the medicine will stabilize symptoms, and that buys you time so you can decide what you need to do with your life. That's the combination, the complementation of therapy and medication. Many years ago, I had a psychotherapy teacher who used to say that the things that interfere with communication, he used to call them noise. Things like being deaf is an impairment noise. Being psychotic is noise. Stereotyping is a cultural noise. And then he used to say, 
a lot of times we have to look at the noise that we ourselves bring to the communication, how we are impairing the communication because of what we want, what we expect, do we have a political agenda attached to it, and so on. Very simple, old-fashioned communication issues between human beings. Exactly, exactly. Do you think the kids have a model for communication? The reason I ask is this. Regardless of whether people are politically for or against President Obama, he speaks beautifully. Is that a model that kids are looking for? Winston Churchill was apparently a model. Are there models out there? Definitely, in the language aspect, yes, President Obama is a model. And our task as professionals is to help patients find their own model so they can learn from each model whatever they need. Children of our parents know that our parents did the best they could but didn't give us all we needed. But as adults, it's our task to find what we need for ourselves. And if we notice that our communications are not effective and lead us into trouble, we can find the models to learn to communicate effectively. A very key point and and very essential to growing up and learning how to survive in our community. Virginia Buki is a psychiatrist in Miami, and she has been generous enough to give us some time to talk about the issues of communication skills, which are very critical and very important to multiple aspects of our existence. Dr. Buki, thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome.